That's just a call to submit to the will of God. The last line of that song she played is, let my will be lost in thine. Uh, what, a great, what a great prayer that is. Well, we're in the book of Acts, and um, Acts is an exciting book. We, we know that. Um, and there's a, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, uh, what's the word I could use? Can I use the word romance to the book of Acts? Can I, can I say it like that? Not boy-girl romance, but almost like a Christian infatuation sometimes with, with this book. Um, and I just, I just want to remind you that not everything in the first century church was great and fantastic. Uh, boy, they were, there were some things there. They were messed up on, on some things. And so there's some things in the first century church, uh, that church that started in Jerusalem then just kind of blossomed out, there's some things that we don't, want to, we don't want to emulate. We don't want to follow that path. But one of the things that we should, one of the things that we should emulate in them is their evangelistic zeal. By that, I mean the passion by which they share, or with which they shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. They took it on themselves that this was to be their, their biggest responsibility was to share their faith with those they lived with, those they worked with, those they communed with. This is just what they were supposed to do. And you've seen it all through the book of Acts, how it just, it just explodes it. One of the reasons to study Acts is because of its uniqueness. There are some things that you only find in this book. Um, it, it is, in fact, I entitled the series, Acts, the First Pages of Church History. It, it gives us the beginning of this thing. So it's, it's unique to a lot of other things that we can, uh, that we can uh, come across. Not everything's to be emulated, but this one, this evangelistic zeal, the drive they had to share the gospel of Christ, that's something we need to get back to. Uh, we, ought to we ought to pursue that, that that's unique. Last week we looked, or two weeks ago, before uh, Brother John was speaking last week, a couple of weeks ago we looked at, at verse number one of chapter one, and you find that phrase in there, uh, the former treatise. Luke wrote this book of Acts. He also wrote uh, the third gospel, Luke, the gospel according to Luke. He says in verse number one, the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Um, it's talking about he, be, he did this up until he ascended, and we'll read about that in just a moment. But it, he, all that he began to do, uh, both do and teach, until his ascension, um, that's going to be a key phrase here tonight in our study. Let's just review a little bit because it's been a couple of weeks from our introduction. We, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, welcome to the book of Acts. We talked about the fact that the book of Acts covers about a 30-year span. It begins with the, of the ascension of Jesus Christ, and it, it goes about 30 or 32 years until Paul gets to, to Italy. He gets to uh, Rome with the gospel. The events of the book start out in Jerusalem, and then they just kind of ripple effect out. Uh, they start there in Jerusalem, and then you start seeing the... Uh, you start seeing the gospel begin to move. The gospel goes from Jerusalem and then it goes across to Antioch in Syria, to modern-day Turkey, 
It crosses the Mediterranean. The, the events in this book cross the Mediterranean Sea. They go to Greece. When you come to the end of the book, you're in Rome. So it, it, it goes all over the place. And let me, just, let me just encourage you with this. If you do a personal study in the book of Acts, it will be best for you to do so with, a, uh, with an atlas. Have a Bible atlas with you. Geography is a key to understanding what happens in the book of Acts. Trace Paul's movements. Once you get to chapter 13, it starts talking about Paul. He's going everywhere, and most of the names are not names you're going to recognize. So get a, get a Bible atlas and keep it close to you in this thing. Um, the outline of the book. You can outline this book in so many different ways. If you wanted to, the simplest way to do it is chapters 1 through 12 talk about Peter. Chapters 13 through the end of the book talk about Paul. That's a simple way to outline it. I think one interesting way to look at this book is to filter its outline through Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Acts 1, 8, Jesus is speaking and he says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, would you watch this, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. You can outline the book of Acts through Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You'd outline it like this. Chapters 1 through 7 talks about the ministry, uh, the church being established at Jerusalem. Starting at chapter 8 through verse 12, you have the church scattered both to Judea and Samaria. And then from chapter 13 through chapter 28, you have the church extended to the uttermost part of the earth. The book of Acts really is the record of what is happening in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. This is all what's going on. Um, for, our, for our focus tonight, we're going to look at verse number 1, and then we're going to go hopefully down through verse number 11. I, I want to draw your attention to the word in verse number 1. I want to draw your attention to the, work, the word began. Began. That word in verse number one, all that Jesus began to do and to teach, that implies that Christ's work on earth was not finished. So I've entitled this message tonight, Is Christ's Work Finished? Is it done? How many times have you heard this phrase, the finished work of Christ? I, I grew up hearing that phrase. But when you read chapter 1 and verse 1, you find all that began, Jesus began to do and teach, and it doesn't say anything about finish. It doesn't say anything about ending. So the question comes up, is Christ's work really finished? Do you remember Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17? In that prayer, the night he prayed it, he would be arrested later, but he prayed this to his Father. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. When he's hanging on the cross, what was one of the last things that he said? If not the last thing, what did he say? It is finished. And yet Luke's, Luke's opening verse in the book of Acts implies that there's not a finished here. So what is it that's going on? Well, let's frame it like this. We need to know what Jesus is talking about when he said, I've finished the work. And when he said it is finished... And what Luke is implying is unfinished. 
So I said it like this for our opening statement tonight. The aim of the book of Acts is to show us that although the redemptive work of Christ was finished at Calvary, his work of evangelizing the world and teaching believers was far from over. When Jesus said it is finished, his redemptive work was 100% finished. It was done. When he said to, uh, when he said to his father in John 17, I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. He was absolutely true and correct in that. And so is Luke when he talks about an unfinished work in this opening verse. You see, the book of Acts tells us what Jesus continued doing after he was taken up to heaven. He wasn't done working. He was done securing salvation for you and me. He was done paying for the sins of mankind. He was done with that, but he wasn't done with all of his work. He continues to work today through the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, he worked through the Holy Spirit in the lives of the apostles. Today, he works through the Holy Spirit in his body, the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 says, We are his body. That's where he's working today. As his body, we, we are to learn that God doesn't need us to do things for him. God wants to do things in and through us. He doesn't want us to do things. He wants him to do things through us. This is how he's working. Um, so the Gospel of Luke, that's the former treatise that's mentioned in verse number 1. It tells us what Jesus began to do. The book of Acts tells us what Jesus continues to do. So with that thought in mind, let's talk tonight in these 11 verses. Let's talk briefly about the unfinished work of Christ. And this gets us now into our journey in the book of Acts. Let's read the first 11 verses. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. Uh, his passion, you know what to read right there, don't you? After his death. He showed himself to the apostles after his death by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, and these are Christ's words now, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Well, we're going to stop right there. That's enough for us tonight. Uh, Boy, this is, this is quite, a, this is quite a, an event. 
They get to see Jesus. Uh, they get to see Jesus go back to heaven. So the Bible here it talks right off right off the beginning of the book of Acts. It starts telling us about the work that is yet to be done. This is the things that Jesus did. He began to do and teach. He began to do it. So he's speaking to his disciples here about work yet to be done. That's the red letters in your Bible from verse 4 to verse 8. So I'd like to look at that tonight. Is the work of Christ finished? And in this chapter, the answer is no. It wasn't then. It's not now. There's still work to do. Let's look at this, let's look at this uh, from Jesus' perspective. As he's talking to his apostles and he's directing them, let's look at what he's having to say and start with this first thought. You're going to see the risen Lord conveying. He is conveying some things to his apostles. He's imparting truth to them. We're going to note what Christ imparted to them, how he imparted it, looking at to whom he imparted it. That's all in verse number one. He's conveying some things to him. The, the beginning of Acts outlines three things that are, um, they are indispensable when it comes to true Christian work. When it comes to the work of the church, there are three things we're going to find here in, in this verse. that They're not negotiable. You've got to have them if that's what's going to go on. I want to be involved in what God wants to be involved in what God is doing in his church. In the local church, this body at Faith Baptist Church, I want to be involved in that. In order to do that, in order for you to do that, there are three things we can't compromise on. They must be found in the true Christian work. The first one is the message. That's the word of God. What is he conveying to the disciples? First thing is he conveys the message to them, the word of God. If we're going to carry out God's work, if these apostles are going to carry out God's work after Jesus goes back to heaven, they have to have the right message. And the scripture says this, he taught them, Jesus taught them right up until he ascended. And we just read that. He's teaching them. He's conveying the message of what they're to be about, what they're to say. He's conveying that right up until the point where he's taken into heaven. Luke highlights some of those things pertaining to the message. Luke highlights some of those things in his gospel. If you want to, you can turn back there. I'm just going to be referencing Luke chapter 24 for a little bit. But there are some things back in Luke chapter 24, and we're going to start at verse number 44. Luke references these things in the last teachings of Jesus Christ. That's where he's coming from. Things that Jesus was conveying to his uh, to his apostles in Luke chapter 24, well, it's the last chapter of the book, and so this is a good place to be if we want to talk about what he was doing right when he left. In verse number 44, he tells them that the source of their message is to be his word. In Luke 24, 44, he says the source of their message is to be his word. These are the words which I spake unto you. What was to be their message? His message. These are my words. That's what he's leaving them. The source of the message is the word of God. The substance of their message. Look in verse number 47. If you're in Luke 24, look in verse number 47. That repentance and remission of sins should be preached. Repentance and remission. That's the substance. What were they to be preaching? Repent. 
Turn to Christ. Turn away from your sins. They were to preach the gospel. The significance of that, the significance of that message, it says, it says that the repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. The significance of their message is this. They were giving the world the words of God himself. They were to preach in his name or in his, in his place. In Acts, watch for this as we make our way through the book of Acts. Watch for how many things are linked to the name of Jesus. They were to preach this message in his name. That's the significance of it. The scope of it. What's the scope of their message? Among, are you still in verse number 47? It's to be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, it says. That's the scope. Everybody gets the gospel. The Jews used to think it was just for them. Their relationship with God was just for them. Jesus always intended to come to the world to save it. And the success of their message is based on verse number 49. Look what it says in verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem. This sounds a lot like Acts 1.8, doesn't it? Until ye be endued with power from on high. Would you just mark that little phrase? The success of their message, the success of their preaching, taking it to the world, it depended on the power that God was going to give them to preach it. And that power is demonstrated all through the book of Acts. The book of Acts is really one long revelation of the power of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of these apostles that were sent out and then the disciples that came after them. Barnabas wasn't an apostle, but you see what God did through him. Silas, Timothy, all those young men, you see the Holy Spirit of God resting on them. One of the greatest problems... In fact, can I just read this? One of the greatest problems plaguing the church today is biblical ignorance. There are people who have been in church for 10 and 20 and 30 years, and they have no clue what God says about certain things. Biblical ignorance. Jesus is trying to head that off, and he's telling them, when I leave... You're to proclaim my message, my words, the words that I have spoken unto you. You and I, church, we are to study to show ourselves approved unto God. We need to know what's in the scripture. You're responsible to disperse the same message that the apostles did, that Jesus came, paid the price for sin, and he's coming back. We're to preach the same thing. We need to know what the scripture said. So first, our message, uh, our work in this world is to be based on the right message, and that message is God's word. But then he talks about something else. Back in, Acts, uh, back in Acts chapter 1, he talks about something else that's absolutely required to be in a church. If we're going to be involved in Christian work, we need the right message. It's the word of God. We also need the right might. And that might is the spirit of God. In verse number 2, it says, Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles. Their power, the power that they're going to demonstrate in the book of Acts, was the power of the Holy Spirit of God on their life. It wasn't because they were fantastic uh, personalities. It wasn't because of Paul's intellect, and Paul was an intellect. He was a theologian, Old Testament scholar. 
But that's not what made Paul's ministry so great. It was this right here in verse number two. They had the power through the Holy Ghost. Even Jesus himself operated in the power of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Luke chapter number four and verse 14 says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. Jesus himself had the power of the Holy Spirit on him. Everything we do for God, teaching, preaching, witnessing, what we do for God, singing, playing an instrument, what we do for God is to be done through the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit. We talked about that when we went through Ephesians a year or two ago. That verb is an ongoing action verb. Be literally means be being. We are to always be being filled with the Spirit. That ought to be an ongoing process in us. The message is the Word of God. The might for His work comes from the Spirit of God, the medium. How do we communicate that? The men of God. In verse number 2, it says that after, after that He, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments unto the apostles whom He had chosen. God uses his men and women to communicate his word. He expects us to be filled with the spirit. John 15, 16 says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit. God is going to do this. He's going to accomplish his word, his work rather, as we stay faithful to his word. That's our message. As we depend on the Holy Spirit, that's our might. And as we follow God's men, that's the medium. He's communicating. God has chose, Paul puts it like this, he's chose the foolishness of preaching to communicate. That's amazing. Well, that's, the, that's how God is going to work. This is what he's conveying. He's conveying to the apostles these ideas. This is what you're going to be. Christians who will be leaders in a church are going to be people of the Bible. They're going to know God's word. Spurgeon, Spurgeon said it a little graphically, but he, spe- he said this. We might preach until our tongues rot, until we exhaust our lungs and die. But never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit uses the word to convert it. That's, that's where the secret is. It's not in you and me. It's, it's in the Holy Spirit resting on you and me, indwelling us, filling us as we submit to him. This is what the Lord was conveying to them. The second thing I want you to see is the risen Lord confirming. There are some things he's shoring up in them. Before the, the, the apostles, before they could take on what seems to be an impossible task, they were to take the gospel without the use of the internet, they were to take the gospel to the world. Before they could do that, They needed to be convinced themselves that Jesus Christ was alive. So he's confirming some things in that. That's what it says in verse number three. They needed to know he was alive. You remember, they thought he was dead. When he got put in that grave, how surprised were Peter and John when they got to the, how surprised were Peter and John when they got to the empty tomb? You remember that? Where is he? Mary herself said, I, I think somebody stole his body and hid it somewhere. And she's asking Jesus because she thinks he's the gardener. Would you, do you know where they put him? They needed to be confirmed 
in their faith that Jesus was actually alive. So you know what he did in verse number three? The Bible says he gave them many infallible proofs. I love that phrase, don't you? He didn't just give them one or two pieces of evidence. He overwhelmed them. In fact, he did it for 40 days in their presence. The Bible says in verse 3 that he, he showed them by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days, speaking of the things that pertain to the kingdom of God. He, he's confirming them. Look, this is real now. Man, that changed their lives. That changed everything about them, didn't it? Once they realized he's alive. He was dead. Now he's alive. So how did he do that? What, what were these proofs that he gave them? I wrote down a couple things. The first thing Jesus did was he strengthened their faith. I don't know what all of these infallible proofs were. I, I don't know. We know one of them was he showed up. But Luke tells us about some of those things. Some of those infallible proofs. For example, in Luke 24, verses 38 through 40, he invited the disciples, after he rose from the dead, he invited the disciples to touch him. They thought he might be a spirit. He said, no, not a spirit. Touch me. Put, put your hands right here. Touch me, he said. Another thing he said in, in Luke chapter 24, verse 41 and 43, he ate in front of them. I don't think... I. I don't think he had to have it because he was, I, I just think he was trying to prove he's, he's alive. They invited him to touch him. He ate before them. These proofs he had were convincing to them. They needed to know Jesus was alive. Who wants to go around and propagate a dead leader? I, I, here's the deal. I don't get it with the Mormons. I'm not trying to be rude to them. I just don't get it with them. If Joseph Smith is in the grave, what better is he than me? I'm not going for that. They needed to know that their leader was alive. Christ showed himself to the apostles because he was preparing for them. Uh, he was preparing them for a ministry in a world that was not going to accept them. It was going to be hard. Most of these were going to die martyrs' deaths. He wanted them to know that he's actually alive, he's really alive, and he's confirming this in them. He did it with many infallible proofs. Like I said, I don't know what all of, what all of them were, were, but I know one of them, he strengthened their faith. He said, go ahead and touch me, shake my hand, hug my neck. He sat down, ate dinner with them. One of the greatest proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the boldness in preaching that we're going to see in the book of Acts. Peter just stood up and he said, he, the Jesus that you crucified, you killed, he's alive. And Peter was so convinced of that, that he went to a cross where he was crucified to death for preaching the risen Christ. Given the opportunity to uh, to reject that teaching, Peter didn't reject it. He said, you're just going to have to crucify me because Jesus is alive. Same with Stephen. Same with James. We can go down the list of the apostles. Apostle after apostle after apostle preached until they were killed because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were abs These infallible proofs. They convinced, they did exactly what Jesus wanted them to do. They confirmed in their hearts they were serving a risen Savior. He's in the world today. They, he, they absolutely knew it. 
Peter's preaching on Solomon's porch outside the temple. He says this, but ye denied the Holy One and the just, capital J, the just, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. That bold preaching. All across Asia Minor and into the beginning stages of Europe came this same truth. Christ rose from the dead the third day according to the scriptures. They were confirmed in their heart that Jesus was alive. It transformed them from cowards to courageous. It was the resurrection. Man, if he can conquer death, then he can do anything. Well, Peter, they're going to put you to death. James, they'll put you to death. They can, but he conquered death. Boy, it just, it just radically changed them. The first thing he did in confirming them and getting them ready for ministry, he strengthened their faith. The second thing is he increased their knowledge. It says in verse number three, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days, there's the, they're strengthening their faith, and then he increased their knowledge and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Do you remember how many times in the, in the gospels before the, res, or before the crucifixion, how many times do you read this where Jesus is talking and he says something like this? The kingdom of God is like, you know what I'm talking about? Time after time. And the disciples are like, oh, that's a good story. That's a good parable. What does that even mean? You know, he told the parable of the sower and they're like, I don't even know what you said. What, what does that mean? After the resurrection, do you not think their ears perked up when he started talking about the kingdom of God now? That's a whole different, there's a whole different perspective. Oh, you're the one who conquered death, and now you want to talk about a coming kingdom? What are the details of that? The Bible says that he, he was speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I think, I'm just guessing here, I think their attitude of listening was completely different on the other side of the resurrection than it was before. Uh, that, what Jesus said, boy, it was, he was increasing their knowledge and talking to them about the kingdom of God, the rule of God that was coming. Three years he spent with them before he was crucified, really talking about the same things, probably saying the same things. But then he added to that, after he rose from the dead, he added to their knowledge I think a lot of their apprehension about the kingdom, even about the future, was, was, was taken away. Now listen, here's the truth. If Christ had never risen, they would have had absolutely no reason to hope for a future kingdom. If Christ would have stayed in that grave, everything he said prior to the crucifixion, how, how, do, we know that, how do we know that this is true? How can this come to pass? He's dead. But he came back from the dead. He rose from the dead. And Zechariah chapter 14, Revelation chapter 19, Revelation chapter 20, all talk about this kingdom that's coming. And Jesus' proof for that, to bolster their faith, to strengthen their faith, and to increase their knowledge, Jesus rose from the dead, and he, he is now he's confirming in their hearts. You know, you can have great faith in everything the Bible says, if for no other reason... You can believe everything the Bible says because Jesus rose from the dead. Everything it says, you can base it on that because he rose from the dead. That's the key 
to all of the preaching in the book of Acts. They keep coming back to that. Paul, later in his epistles, he's going to keep mentioning, Peter's going to hammer it, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. You can believe everything in the Bible because of that. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that was a turning point. And so to confirm them, to shore them up, to strengthen their faith, he talked to them about the kingdom based on the resurrection, based on his resurrection. So you have the risen Lord conveying. He's giving some things to the apostles. You have him confirming. He's shoring up their faith. Third one, the risen Lord correcting. Correcting. We don't care for this all that much, but he's doing it here. He has to do it here. I'll say a word, and you're going to take it as a bad word. Waiting. Do you think the apostles hated waiting as much as you and I do? You ever get frustrated with that? You're asking God to do something and you just have to sit there and wait. And sometimes it's not hours or days. Sometimes it's months or years. There are loved ones some of you have been praying for. You're, you're now in maybe a second or third decade that you've been praying for someone. And you're waiting for God to do something. I wonder if the disciples, the apostles here in the book of Acts, I wonder if they hated that word as much as as we do. Here's why I asked that question. After they had these meetings, for 40 days, Jesus is talking to them, right? He's, 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 he's talking to them. They know he's resurrected from the dead. That would amp me up a little bit. I'd be ready, wouldn't you? Jesus rose from the dead. 40 days, we've been talking with him. We've been eating with him. We were out fishing. He showed up. We, we had fish on the side of the lake of Gennesaret. Uh, all these things. And well, they're ready to go now. The old preacher used the phrase, uh, charging hell with a squirt gun. If you get fired up, if you get, up, if you get fired up enough for the Lord, I, you're like, I think we can do this. I think we can walk right into Baghdad, stand on a street corner, and preach the gospel to those Muslims. I think we can do this. And God's going to save them all. You get, well, they've been talking to Jesus for over a month, face to face. And they're getting amped up. They're ready to go. Oh, well, we got to get out of here. we got to get out of here and start telling people. What does Jesus tell them to do? I want you to go to Jerusalem and just wait. Just wait. That's like telling a four-year-old kid you're going to take him to the zoo tomorrow, but telling him that at 8 o'clock this morning. They've got all the perspective they need. He's risen from the dead. He's the one who's going to send the Holy Spirit back to us. We know. We believe, Jesus. We, we're not doubting anymore. Wait. Go back to Jerusalem and wait. He says that, wait for the promise, verse 4, of the Father which you have heard of me. The risen Lord correcting them. Here's the thing. They needed more than emotional enthusiasm. Their emotions, as good as it gets when you hear good preaching and good singing, and boy, doesn't some, some singing, doesn't it just get your heart? Boy, it's about to burst. As good as that gets, that's not enough to go through this world. That's not enough, that's not enough to have someone cuss you out when you're trying to tell them how to stay out of hell. I had a guy come to the door one time. We were door knocking when I was in college. We had a guy come to the door one time with a rifle. And when he found out what we were doing, I thought he was going to use it. 
emotions and enthusiasm, that's not enough to get you through it when somebody is tearing you down or tearing your family down or mocking your belief in Christ. You need to wait for the promise of the Father. And that promise was the Holy Spirit's coming. So, so they needed more than that. They needed the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is going to correct a couple of things in them. Here's the first one. Correction concerning their service. Correction concerning their service. That's verses 4 and 5. That's really what I've been talking about. They were to wait on the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were ready to go right now. He said, I want you to wait. He had told them repeatedly, by the way, he told them repeatedly, the Holy Spirit's not going to come till after I leave. And Jesus hasn't left yet in verse number 4. He told them in John 14 and verse 16, John 14, 26, John 15, 26, and John 16, 7. The Holy Spirit will come after I leave. They had to have the Holy Spirit before they could effectively do the Lord's work. They were going to be baptized or indwelt by the Holy Spirit 10 days hence, he said. 10 days from now. I want you to wait. Boy, that little kid being told he's going to the zoo tomorrow. What if you told him 10 days before he's going to the zoo? They were ready to go, but they, they had to be corrected in their service because they weren't quite ready for it yet. It doesn't mean that waiting, uh, it doesn't mean that waiting, that waiting period of 10 days applies to everybody that gets saved today. Remember I said not everything in the book of Acts is applicable. Today, when a person gets saved, they are immediately indwelt, permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. These men were not yet permanently indwelt. That's what they were waiting for. Today, when someone gets saved, right now, they've got the Holy Spirit in them. They've got access to Holy Spirit power right now. But they had to wait here. Christ was going to go back to heaven, and he said, then I'll send the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 says this, Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Believers today... When they get saved, they have the Holy Spirit. If they don't have the Holy Spirit, they're not saved. They don't get saved now and get the Holy Spirit later. If they're saved, they've got the Holy Spirit. That's what Romans 8, 9 says. And part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to enlighten us. He's to encourage us. When things are hard, when the rejection is hard, like it was going to be for these apostles, his ministry was to encourage them. So Jesus in John 14, 26 and John 16, 13 said that the comforter would come, teach them all things and guide them in all truth. I want you to go back and wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait for the promise of the Father. He corrects them in their service when they were going to go, where they were going to go. Just wait. The second thing is he, he gives them correction concerning seasons. Correction concerning seasons. He got, they, they heard that, and it said, uh, it said, But wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they were therefore come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou not at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they get caught up in what's going to happen. They talk, he, Jesus talking about being baptized with the Spirit. They assumed that meant the kingdom was coming right now, not many days hence. And so they, they asked this question, are you going to establish your kingdom right now? This kingdom of Israel, this kingdom that you've been talking about, Ezekiel chapter 36, Joel chapter 2, is this going to happen right now? 
Christ's answer in verse number 7 is a correction to how they see, I, I use seasons for, for my, my alliteration, but how they see time. Verse 7 is a correction. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. That's not what we're talking about right here. He's correcting their attitude towards service. Wait, slow down. You need the Holy Spirit's power on your life. And then he corrects them in this perspective uh, on, the, on the kingdom, the literal kingdom, the physical kingdom of God. They're all misconstrued about the timing. And he said, don't worry about the timing of it. The timing is not what we're dealing with. God was going to determine uh, what they knew and what they didn't know. And right now, they just didn't need to know when God's kingdom was going to come to the earth. It's not for you to know those things. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer this out loud because if I did, it might indict me. What if we knew, what would we be like if we knew the exact day and time that Jesus Christ was coming back? What if we knew, let me ask you a question. What if you knew Jesus Christ was not coming back until June 6th, 2029, at 3 in the afternoon. What would you do with that information? You know what I want to say? Buddy, I'd go out there and I'd tell everybody I could, Jesus has come back. I, I'd love to say that. You know the truth of it? Most of us would be slack in our Christianity because this would be our attitude. Oh, we've, got, we've got about four or five years here. Jesus, Jesus shows great wisdom here, saying you don't need to know when, when, when the kingdom's coming. What you need to know is what you need to be about right now. Focus on this. God's got great wisdom in doing this. I know me. You know you. If I knew Jesus wasn't coming back for four or five years, our sense of urgency would get lost, wouldn't it? But I'm sitting here tonight, so are you thinking, and, and hopefully this is on our mind, Jesus can come at any minute. If I know he's not coming for five years, I might put the brakes on some things. We don't want to do that. So Jesus tells them it's not for you to know some things. So he, has, he conveys some things to them. He confirms some things in them. He corrects them on some wrong thinking here. And the last thing is this, and it's, it's the verse that you and I know well. The, Lord, the, the risen Lord commissioning. The risen Lord commissioning. May I... May I point this out to you that the last words Jesus spoke on earth before ascending, the last words he spoke are this, the uttermost part of the earth. Don't let that, don't let that go away. We've had some, we've had some people in, in our church in the past that had a problem with our emphasis on worldwide missions. That's a lot of money to send $220,000 out of this country and around the world. We have some people who had a problem with that. I want you to know that the last thing Jesus said before departing the planet, he was talking about the uttermost part of the earth. And back then, that was you and me. Amen. We were the uttermost part of the earth. And if the uttermost part of the earth was the last thing on the mind of Christ, or the last thing that he was saying to his disciples as he left, that ought to be priority to us. 
He could have been talking about a lot of things. He could have been talking about family. He could have been talking about marriage. He could have been talking about faithfulness. He could have been talking about so many good topics. But the last thing he said was, take the gospel to the uttermost part of the earth. And verse number nine says, when he spake those things while they beheld, he was taken up. This has come to be called the Great Commission. They were to share the gospel with the millions of people that were in the world at that time. Today we have the Great Commission and our, responsi our responsibility is the billions of people in the world. Let's talk about that commission for just a little bit and then we're done. The nature of it. In verse number 8, the nature of this commission. Its power is reflected in that word dunamis. You know it's the word dynamite. We've heard that a hundred times. You have the power of the Holy Spirit, the explosive power of the Holy Spirit living in you. The power of this commission, the accomplishment of this commission is not your power or my power. It's dependent on him. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. This dunamis power is his. A.C. Dixon said it like this. When we rely on organization... We get what organization can do. When we rely on education, we get what education can do. When we rely on the Holy Spirit, we get what he can do. Amen. That's the power. So the nature of this commission, your responsibility, my responsibility, to get, to get it to the world, first of all, there's the power to be considered. Second thing, the personnel. Ye shall be witnesses. Us. We. That, that word witnesses in the noun form shows up 11 times in the book of Acts. It's repeated. We are to be witnesses. Now the downside of that is the word witness is the Greek word from which we get the word martyr. It's martos. We get our word martyr from that. He's literally calling people to tell the truth about Jesus Christ and be willing to pay the price with their life. But he's calling us to be witnesses. So you need to ask yourself, are you, are you telling people about Christ? You've been called. You don't have to wait for a call. You've been commissioned, somebody said. Ye shall be my witnesses, and we are to, we're to do just that. So ask yourself, are you witnessing as you should? In the opportunities that God brings your way, George Whitfield was preaching in Scotland outside the city of Edinburgh. And he was preaching, and he started his preaching uh, at this church um, at five in the morning. And people were flocking to the church to hear him. 5 a.m. to go hear this guy preach. There was a humanist, uh, a secular skeptic named David Hume who lived in Edinburgh. And there was a Christian on the way to hear Whitfield preach one morning, and he was surprised to turn to, his, to turn to the side and see David Hume on his way to the church. And he knew who Hume was, and he said to him, he said, Mr. Hume, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. You, you don't believe in this. I, I, don't, I didn't know you believed in the gospel. He said, I don't believe in the gospel. I don't believe in Jesus Christ. But that guy does. He just wanted to go hear someone who was so convinced about the gospel. Amen. And you and I deal with skeptics every day. 
they ought to be drawn to our convinced state of the gospel. Most people in this world, don't, they don't have an adamant opinion on anything. You and I ought to have an adamant opinion on Jesus Christ and the, the gospel. That's what Whitfield was doing. Hume said, I don't believe in Jesus, but he does. I'm just going to go hear what he has to say. That's how it ought to be with us. The nature of this commitment, it involves the power, that's the Holy Spirit. The personnel, that's you and me. We are to be witnesses. How is that going with you? And then the program. The program is simple. Start at home. Work your way to the uttermost part of the earth. That was, that's the program. That's, that's the whole plan. That's God's plan to reach the world. Take these 11 men. Put them in Jerusalem. Ultimately change the world and that's exactly what happened that's the description of a missionary heart taking the gospel from here around the world i'll say this i'm not trying to be unkind but there is no burden there's no genuine burden for people around the world who need the gospel if you do not have a burden for the people you live and work with every day don't tell me how deep your, your burden is for the people in Ethiopia or Peru or Belize or China when you are content to let your coworkers go to hell without ever hearing the name Jesus from you. That's not a genuine burden. That's an emotional response to somebody that showed pretty pictures of little deaf kids on a screen. A genuine burden says, I don't know anybody here or around the world that I want to go to hell. Jesus put that to him, and the disciples took it so seriously that in less than 30 years, not only had they, according to Scripture, filled Jerusalem with their doctrine, they were accused of turning the world upside down. That's how convinced they were that the world needed the gospel. That's the nature of the Great Commission. It ought to do something in us. And then there's the need for this commission. Why in the world are we even talking about this? Why, why do we need a commission from God? Why did Jesus have to say in Mark 16, 15, go preach the world to every, go, go preach the gospel to every creature? Why are we told here to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth? Why do we have this? The need for the commission. Why? It's because Luke used three different expressions because of, uh, to describe the event that just took place here. The need for the commission is because, as it says in verse number 9, Jesus was taken up. Jesus was received into a cloud. In verse 10, he went up. The need for the commission is because that Jesus physically left the earth, and now we have to know who's going to do, do this work. Well, it's up to us. That's an incredible sight, Jesus ascending into heaven, but Jesus is gone and there are, the, there are the disciples standing there, and they're looking up. And when they look around, there's two angels all of a sudden standing right there. The Bible calls them men. Uh, it says in, in verse number 10, they are men in white apparel. But you and I both know they're angels. And then they ask that question. May I paraphrase, without doing any disrespect to verse number 11, may I paraphrase it so you get the, the gist of what is being said? The, the angels asked them this, what are you doing here staring at clouds? 
Jesus is coming back. That's the gist of verse number 11. Why, why are you looking at clouds? Why are you, well, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into the, into the heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Do you know that they thought back then, now they were mistaken, but they thought back then Jesus could come at any time. That's what the, that's what the apostles thought. Paul thought he was going to be part of the rapture generation. He didn't realize that there was having to come a time when Israel had to be reformed as a nation. But that's the idea behind it. What are you doing here watching clouds? Jesus is coming back. Get to work. That's the idea of it. Christians, Jesus is coming back. The need for this commission is that Jesus is coming back. How willing are you? Let me, let me rephrase that. I, I started to say how willing are you to be involved. Let me rephrase that. How involved are you willing to be in getting the gospel to the world? Where, where are you going to draw the line? Where do you draw it? How involved are you willing to be? Now, I'm going to quote a guy here, and we're going to have to, we're going to, have to excuse his motive and his focus, but what he says ought to drive you and I. This man's name, and I'm probably butchering it because I don't speak Russian, his name was Nechev, a 19th century disciple of Karl Marx. He was thrown in, into prison for his role in the assassination of Tsar Alexander XI. Before he died, he wrote, uh, well, he had to write it before he died. That was a dumb statement. He died, <laughs> but before he died, this is what he wrote. Now, now, look, I'm, I'm not condoning his heart and his, his motives or anything, but listen to what he said about his position. The revolutionary man is a consecrated man. He has neither his own interests, nor concerns, nor feelings, no attachment, no property, not even a name. All for him is absorbed in the single exclusive interest in the one thought, in the one passion, revolution. Now, I, I, don't, I don't appreciate the focus of his words. But what if I took his words and, and changed the ending? What if I said this? The godly Christian is a consecrated man or woman. They have neither their own interests, nor concerns, nor feelings, no attachment to property, not even their name. All for them is absorbed in the single exclusive interest, in the one thought, in the one passion, the glory of Jesus Christ. What if we took his words and we put them in the right place? Everything about his life was to bring about a revolution in Russia. Everything in my life and in your life ought to be to bring about the glorification of the, of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ. We ought to do that till we die. Whether we live or die, whether we're sick or healthy, whether we are well received 
or rejected in our witness, our deepest desire ought to be to please him in what we do. He has called us to be witnesses, testifiers of truth, even if it means our life. Did you know that he could have used, Jesus could have used other Greek words for witnesses than that one? But he used the one that said, I want you to testify of the truth, even if it costs you your life. And here's, here's my closing point, then we'll pray. There's no loopholes in this for the Christian. There's, there's, no, there's no getting out of this. It is your responsibility. It is my responsibility. Is the work of Jesus Christ finished? No. No. We are to be about his work. No loopholes, no getting out of it. None of us can say, this doesn't apply to me. It applies to me, it applies to you. Ye shall be my witnesses. So take the gospel to the people around you and make sure the gospel gets around the world. You've heard our missionaries have preached this before and you've heard other preachers say it. In that, in that command, in verse number 8, when he says, Ye are to be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. When he used that word both, he, used, he, he conveyed the idea simultaneously. You're to be witnesses in all these places at the same time. You and I are not omnipresent. We have to be involved in worldwide missions. That's why we're having a global focus this week. The last words that Jesus said before he went to heaven were the uttermost part of the earth. That ought to weigh on our heart. That, that ought to give us some perspective on this. So is the work of Christ finished? Nope. Might be tomorrow, but it's not yet. Let's do our work. Let's do what God's given us to do. All right? Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer. God, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for the challenge we get from it. There is a, uh, there's a soberness to this, Lord. You, you said we, we are to be your witnesses, and we are to be involved in people that we will never meet on this planet. We're to be involved in their salvation, and we do that by praying that you would send more laborers into your harvest. Even as we read in, in the letter this morning from Brother Terry and Sister Barb, that the prayer is that you would send labors into the harvest. Lord, we are to give so that other people can go who you've called and they can go to these uttermost parts of the earth. And then, Lord, there might be in those here who should go to the uttermost part of the earth. All of us ought to go out into our communities, but some in here might be called by you to go. Lord, if that's true, Give them a willing heart and, and remind them there is no greater place of safety or satisfaction or security than in the center of your will. Bless this word tonight to our hearts. Help us not to just blow it off as another Sunday night service. Lord, this is your word for what's to occupy our time till we see you face to face. Help us to be about it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.